And now we continue the fantastic story, Tarzan of the Apes, by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter 15, The Forest God. When Clayton heard the report of the firearm, he fell into an agony of fear and apprehension. He knew that one of the sailors might be the author of it, but the fact that he had left the revolver with Jane, together with the overwrought condition of his nerves, made him morbidly positive that she was threatened with some great danger. Perhaps even now she was attempting to defend herself against some savage man or beast. What were the thoughts of his strange captor or guide, Clayton could only vaguely conjecture. But that he had heard the shot and was in some manner affected by it was quite evident, for he quickened his pace so appreciably that Clayton, stumbling blindly in his wake, was down a dozen times in as many minutes in a vain effort to keep pace with him, and soon was left hopelessly behind. Fearing that he would again be irretrievably lost, he called aloud to the wild man ahead of him, and in a moment had the satisfaction of seeing him drop lightly to his side from the branches above. For a moment, Tarzan looked at the young man closely, as though undecided as to just what was the best to do. Then, stooping down before Clayton, he motioned him to grasp him about the neck, and, with the white man upon his back, Tarzan took to the trees. The next few minutes the young Englishman never forgot. High into bending and swaying branches he was borne with what seemed to him incredible swiftness, while Tarzan chafed at the slowness of his progress. From one lofty branch the agile creature swung with Clayton through a dizzy arc to a neighboring tree. Then for a hundred yards, maybe the sure feet threaded a maze of interwoven limbs, balancing like a tightrope walker high above the black depths of the verdure beneath. From the first sensation of chilling fear, Clayton passed to one of keen admiration and envy of those giant muscles and that wondrous instinct or knowledge which guided this forest god through the inky blackness of the night, as easily and safely as Clayton would have strolled a London street at high noon. Occasionally they would enter a spot where the foliage above was less dense, and the bright rays of the moon lit up before Clayton's wandering eyes the strange path they were traversing. At such times the man fairly caught his breath at sight of the horrid depths below them, for Tarzan took the easiest way, which often led over a hundred feet above the earth. And yet with all his seeming speed, Tarzan was in reality feeling his way with comparative slowness, searching constantly for limbs of adequate strength for the maintenance of the double weight. Presently they came to the clearing before the beach. Tarzan's quick ears had heard the strange sounds of Saber's efforts to force her way through the lattice, and it seemed to Clayton that they dropped a straight hundred feet to the earth, so quickly did Tarzan descend. Yet when they struck the ground, it was with scarce a jar, and as Clayton released his hold on the ape-man, he saw him dart like a squirrel for the opposite side of the cabin. The Englishman sprang quickly after him, just in time to see the hind quarters of some huge animal about to disappear through the window of the cabin. As Jane opened her eyes to a realization of the imminent peril which threatened her, her brave young heart gave up at last its final vestige of hope. But then, to her surprise, she saw the huge animal being slowly drawn back through the window, and in the moonlight beyond she saw the heads and shoulders of two men. As Clayton rounded the corner of the cabin to behold the animal disappearing within, it was also to see the ape-man seize the long tail in both hands, and bracing himself with his feet against the side of the cabin, throw all his mighty strength into the effort to draw the beast out of the interior. 
Clayton was quick to lend a hand, but the ape-man jabbered to him in a commanding and peremptory tone, something which Clayton knew to be orders, though he could not understand them. At last, under their combined efforts, the great body was slowly dragged farther and farther outside the window, and then there came to Clayton's mind a dawning conception of the rash bravery of his companion's act. For a naked man to drag a shrieking, clawing man-eater forth from a window by the tail to save a strange white girl was indeed the last word in heroism. Insofar as Clayton was concerned, it was a very different matter, since the girl was not only of his own kind and race, but was the one woman in all the world whom he loved. Though he knew that the lioness would make short work of both of them, he pulled with a will to keep it from Jane Porter. And then he recalled the battle between this man and the great black-maned lion, which he had witnessed a short time before, and he commenced to feel more assurance. Tarzan was still issuing orders which Clayton could not understand. He was trying to tell the stupid white man to plunge his poisoned arrows into Saber's back and sides and to reach the savage heart with the long, thin hunting knife that hung at Tarzan's hip. But the man would not understand, and Tarzan did not dare release his hold to do the things himself, for he knew that the puny white man never could hold mighty Saber alone, not even for an instant. Slowly the lioness was emerging from the window. At last her shoulders were out. And then Clayton saw an incredible thing. Tarzan, racking his brains for some means to cope single-handed with the infuriated beast, had suddenly recalled his battle with Turkaz, and as the great shoulders came clear of the window, so that the lioness hung upon the sill only by her forepaws, Tarzan suddenly released his hold upon the brute. With the quickness of a striking rattler, he launched himself full upon Saber's back, his strong young arm seeking and gaining a full Nelson upon the beast, as he had learned it that other day during his bloody wrestling victory over Turkaz. With a roar, the lioness turned completely over on her back, falling full upon her enemy, but the black-haired giant only closed tighter his hold. Pawing it, tearing at earth and air, Saber rolled and threw herself this way and that in an effort to dislodge this strange antagonist. But ever tighter and tighter drew the iron bands that were forcing her head lower and lower upon her tawny breast. Higher crept the steel forearms of the ape-man about the back of Saber's neck. Weaker and weaker became her efforts. At last, Clayton saw the immense muscles of Tarzan's shoulders and biceps leap into corded knots beneath the silver moonlight. There was a long, sustained, and supreme effort on the ape-man's part, and the vertebrae of Saber's neck parted with a sharp snap. In an instant, Tarzan was upon his feet, and for the second time that day, Clayton heard the bull ape's savage roar of victory. Then he heard Jane's agonized cry. Cecil! Mr. Clayton! Oh, what is it? What is it? Running quickly to the cabin door, Clayton called out that all was all right and shouted to her to open the door. As quickly as she could, she raised the great bar and fairly dragged Clayton within. What was that awful noise? She whispered, shrinking close to him. It was the cry of the kill from the throat of the man who has just saved your life, Miss Porter. Wait, I will fetch him so you may thank him. The frightened girl would not be left alone so she accompanied Clayton to the side of the cabin where lay the dead body of the lioness. But Tarzan of the Apes was gone. Clayton called several times, but there was no reply, and so the two returned to the greater safety of the interior, 
What a frightful sound, cried Jane. I shudder at the mere thought of it. Do not tell me that a human throat voiced that hideous and fearsome shriek. Ah, but it did, Miss Porter, replied Clayton, or at least, if not a human throat, that of a forest god. And then he told her of his experiences with this strange creature, of how twice the wild man had saved his life, of the wondrous strength and agility and bravery of the brown skin and handsome face. I cannot make it out at all, he concluded. At first I thought he might be Tarzan of the apes, but he neither speaks nor understands English, so that theory is untenable. Well, whatever he may be, cried the girl, we owe him our lives, and may God bless him and keep him in safety in this wild and savage jungle. Amen, said Clayton fervently. For the good Lord's sake, ain't I dead? The two turned to see Esmeralda sitting upright upon the floor, her great eyes rolling from side to side, as though she could not believe their testimony as to her whereabouts. And now, for Jane Porter, the reaction came, and she threw herself upon the bench, sobbing with hysterical laughter. Chapter 16 Most Remarkable Several miles south of the cabin, upon a strip of sandy beach, stood two old men arguing. Before them stretched the broad Atlantic. At their backs was the dark continent. Close around them loomed the impenetrable blackness of the jungle. Savage beasts roared and growled. Noises, hideous and weird, assailed their ears. They had wandered for miles in search of their camp, but always in the wrong direction. They were as hopelessly lost as though they suddenly had been transported to another world. At such a time, indeed, every fiber of their combined intellects must have been concentrated upon the vital question of the minute, the life-and-death question to them of retracing their steps to camp. Samuel T. Fillander was speaking. "'But my dear professor,' he was saying, "'I still maintain that but for the victories of Ferdinand and Isabella over the 15th-century Moors in Spain,' The world would be today a thousand years in advance of where we now find ourselves. The Moors were essentially a tolerant, broad-minded, liberal race of agriculturists and artisans and merchants, the very type of people that have made possible such civilization as we find today in America and Europe, while the Spaniards... Tut, tut, dear Mr. Fillander, interrupted Professor Porter. Their religion positively precluded the possibilities you suggest. Moslemism was, and is, always will be, a blight on the scientific progress which is marked. Bless me, Professor, interjected Mr. Fillander, who had turned his gaze toward the jungle. There seems to be someone approaching. Professor Archimedes Q. Porter turned to the direction indicated by the near-sighted Mr. Fillander. Tut, tut, Mr. Fillander, he chided. How often must I urge you to seek that absolute concentration of your mental faculties which alone may permit you to bring to bear the highest powers of intellectuality upon the momentous problems which naturally fall to the lot of great minds. And now I find you guilty of a most flagrant breach of courtesy in interrupting my learned discourse to call contention to a mere quadruped of the genius Phyllis. As I was saying, Heavens, Professor, a lion! cried Mr. Fillander, straining his weak eyes toward the dim figure outlined against the dark tropical underbrush. A lion! Bless me, Professor! 
again interrupted Mr. Fillander. Permit me to suggest that doubtless the Moors, who were conquered in the 15th century, will continue in that most regrettable condition for the time being at least, even though we postpone discussion of that world calamity until we may attain the enchanting view of yon Felis Cornivora, which distance proverbially is credited with lending. In the meantime, the lion had approached with quiet dignity to within ten paces of the two men, where he stood curiously watching them. The moonlight flooded the beach, and the strange group stood out in bold relief against the yellow sand. "'Most reprehensible! Most reprehensible!' exclaimed Professor Porter, with a faint trace of irritation in his voice. "'Never, Mr. Fillander, never before in my life have I known one of these animals to be permitted to roam at large from its cage. I shall most certainly report this outrageous breach of ethics to the directors of the adjacent zoological garden.' "'Quite right, Professor,' agreed Mr. Fillander. "'And the sooner it's done, the better. "'Let us start now.' Seizing the Professor by the arm, Mr. Fillander set off in the direction that would put the greatest distance between themselves and the lion. They had proceeded but a short distance when a backward glance revealed to the horrified gaze of Mr. Fillander that the lion was following them. He tightened his grip upon the protesting Professor and increased his speed. "'As I was saying, Mr. Fillander,' repeated Professor Porter. Mr. Fillander took another hasty glance rearward. The lion also had quickened his gait and was doggedly maintaining an unvarying distance behind them. "'He is following us,' gasped Mr. Fillander, breaking into a run. "'Tut, tut, Mr. Fillander,' remonstrated the professor. "'This unseemly haste is most unbecoming to men of letters.' What will our friends think of us, who may chance to be upon the street and witness our frivolous antics? Pray let us proceed with more decorum. Mr. Fillander stole another observation astern. The lion was bounding along in easy leaps, scarce five paces behind. Mr. Fillander dropped the professor's arm and broke into a mad orgy of speed that would have done credit to any varsity track team. As I was saying, Mr. Fillander! "'screamed Professor Porter. "'As metaphorically speaking, he himself threw her into high. "'He too had caught a fleeting backward glimpse of cruel yellow eyes "'and a half-open mouth within startling proximity of his person. "'With streaming coattails and shiny silk hat, "'Professor Archimedes Q. Porter fled through the moonlight "'close upon the heels of Mr. Samuel T. Fillander. "'Before them a point of the jungle ran out toward a narrow promontory.' and it was for the haven of the trees he saw there that Mr. Samuel T. Fillander directed his prodigious leaps and bounds, while from the shadows of this same spot peered two keen eyes in interested appreciation of the race. It was Tarzan of the Apes who watched, with face a grin, this odd game of follow the leader. He knew the two men were safe enough from attack insofar as the lion was concerned. The very fact that Numa had foregone such easy prey at all convinced the wise forest craft of Tarzan that Numa's belly already was full. The lion might stalk them until hungry again, but the chances were that if not angered, he would soon tire of the sport and slink away to his jungle lair. Really, the one great danger was that one of the men might stumble and fall, and then the yellow devil would be upon him in a moment, and the joy of the kill would be too great a temptation to withstand. So Tarzan swung quickly to a lower limb in line with the approaching fugitives 
and as Mr. Samuel T. Fellander came panting and blowing beneath him, already too spent to struggle up to the safety of the limb, Tarzan reached down and, grasping him by the collar of his coat, yanked him to the limb by his side. Another moment brought the professor within the sphere of the friendly grip, and he too was drawn upward to safety, just as the baffled Numa, with a roar, leaped to recover his vanishing quarry. For a moment the two men clung panting to the great branch, while Tarzan squatted with his back to the stem of the tree, watching them with mingled curiosity and amusement. It was the professor who first broke the silence. "'I am deeply pained, Mr. Fillander, that you should have evinced such a paucity of manly courage in the presence of one of the lower orders, and by your crass timidity have caused me to exert myself to such an unaccustomed degree in order that I might resume my discourse. As I was saying, Mr. Fillander, when you interrupted me, the Moors... <coughs> Professor Archimedes Q. Porter broke in Mr. Fillander in icy tones. The time has arrived when patience becomes a crime and mayhem appears garbed in the mantle of virtue. You have accused me of cowardice? You have insinuated that you ran only to overtake me, not to escape the clutches of the lion? Have a care. Professor Archimedes Q. Porter, I am a desperate man. Goaded by long-suffering patience, the worm will turn. Tut-tut, Mr. Fellander, cautioned Professor Porter. You forget yourself. I forget nothing as yet, Professor Archimedes Q. Porter, but believe me, sir, I am tottering on the verge of forgetfulness as to your exalted position in the world of science and your gray hairs. The professor sat in silence for a few minutes, and the darkness hid the grim smile that wreathed his wrinkled countenance. Presently he spoke. "'Look here, skinny fellander,' he said in belligerent tones. "'If you're looking for a scrap, peel off your coat and come on down on the ground, "'and I'll punch your head just as I did sixty years ago in the alley back of Porky Evans' barn.' "'Ark!' gasped the astonished Mr. Fillander. "'Lordy, how good that sounds. "'When you're human, Ark, I love you.' "'but somehow it seems as though you had forgotten "'how to be human for the last twenty years.' "'The professor reached out a thin, trembling old hand "'through the darkness until it found his old friend's shoulder. "'Forgive me, Skinny,' he said softly. "'It hasn't been quite twenty years, "'and God alone knows how hard I've tried to be human "'for Jane's sake, and yours too, "'since he took my other Jane away.' Another old hand stole up from Mr. Fillander's side to clasp the one that lay upon his shoulder, and no other message could better have translated the one heart to the other. They didn't speak for some minutes. The lion below them paced nervously back and forth. The third figure in the tree was hidden by the dense shadows near the stem. He, too, was silent, motionless as a graven image. "'You certainly pulled me up into this tree just in time,' said the professor at last. I want to thank you. You saved my life. But I didn't pull you up here, Professor, said Mr. Fillander. Bless me! The excitement of the moment quite caused me to forget that I myself was drawn up here by some outside agency. There must be someone or something in this tree with us. Eh? spoke Professor Porter. Are you quite positive, Mr. Fillander? Most positive, Professor, replied Mr. Fillander. And... He added, 
I think we should thank the party. He may be sitting right next to you now. Eh, what's that? Tut, tut, Mr. Fillander, said Professor Porter, edging cautiously nearer to Mr. Fillander. Just then it occurred to Tarzan of the Apes that Numa had loitered beneath the tree for a sufficient length of time. So he raised his young head toward the heavens, and there rang out upon the terrified ears of the two old men the awful warning challenge of the anthropoid. The two friends, huddled trembling in their precarious position on the limb, saw the great lion halt in his restless pacing as the blood-curdling cry smote his ears, and then slink quietly into the jungle to be instantly lost to view. Even the lion trembles in fear, whispered Mr. Fillander. Most remarkable, most remarkable, murmured Professor Porter, clutching frantically at Mr. Fillander to regain the balance which the sudden fright had so perilously endangered. Unfortunately for them both, Mr. Fillander's center of equilibrium was at that very moment hanging upon the ragged edge of nothing, so that it needed but the gentle impetus supplied by the additional weight of Professor Porter's body to topple the devoted secretary from the limb. For a moment they swayed uncertainly, and then, with mingled and most unscholarly shrieks, they pitched headlong from the tree, locked in frenzied embrace. It was quite some moments ere either moved, for both were positive that any such attempt would reveal so many breaks and fractures as to make further progress impossible. At last Professor Porter made an attempt to move one leg. To his surprise, it responded to his will as in days gone by. He now drew up its mate and stretched it forth again. Most remarkable, he murmured. Thank God, Professor, whispered Mr. Fillander fervently. You are not dead, then? Tut, tut, Mr. Fillander, cautioned Professor Porter. I do not know with accuracy as yet. With infinite solitude, Professor Porter wiggled his right arm. Joy, it was intact. Breathlessly, he waved his left arm above his prostrate body, and it waved. Most remarkable, he said. To whom are you signaling, Professor? asked Mr. Fillander in an excited tone. Professor Porter deigned to make no response to this puerile inquiry. Instead, he raised his head gently from the ground, nodding it back and forth a half dozen times. Most remarkable, he breathed. It remains intact. Mr. Fillander had not moved from where he had fallen. He had not dared the attempt. How indeed could one move when one's arms and legs and back were broken? One eye was buried in the soft loam. The other, rolling sideways, was fixed in awe upon the strange gyrations of Professor Porter. How sad, exclaimed Mr. Fillander, half aloud. Concussion of the brain, superinducing total mental aberration. How very sad indeed. And for one still so young. Professor Porter rolled over upon his stomach. Gingerly he bowed his back until he resembled a huge tomcat in proximity to a yelping dog. Then he sat up and felt the various portions of his anatomy. They're all here, he exclaimed. Most remarkable. Whereupon he arose, and bending a scathing glance upon the still prostrate form of Mr. Samuel T. Fillander, he said, Tut, tut, Mr. Fillander, this is no time to indulge in slothful ease. We must be up and doing. Mr. Fillander lifted his other eye out of the mud and gazed in speechless rage at Professor Porter. 
Then he attempted to rise. Nor could he have been any more surprised than when his efforts were immediately crowned with marked success. He was still bursting with rage, however, at the cruel injustice of Professor Porter's insinuation, and was on the point of rendering a tart rejoinder when his eyes fell upon a strange figure standing a few paces away, scrutinizing them intently. Professor Porter had recovered his shiny silk hat, which he had brushed carefully upon the sleeve of his coat and replaced upon his head. When he saw Mr. Fillander pointing to something behind him, he turned to behold a giant, naked but for a loincloth and a few metal ornaments, standing motionless before him. "'Good evening, sir,' said the professor, lifting his hat. For reply, the giant motioned them to follow him and set off up the beach in the direction from which they had recently come. "'I think it's the better part of discretion to follow him,' said Mr. Fillander. "'Tut, tut, Mr. Fillander,' returned the professor. "'A short time since you were advancing a most logical argument "'in substantiation of your theory that camp lay directly south of us. "'I was skeptical, but you finally convinced me, "'so now I'm positive that toward the south we must travel to reach our friends. "'Therefore I shall continue south.' Uh, "'But, Professor Porter, this man may know better than either of us. "'He seems to be indigenous to this part of the world. "'Let us at least follow him for a short distance.' "'Tut, tut, Mr. Fillander,' repeated the professor. "'I am a difficult man to convince. "'But when once convinced, my decision is unalterable. "'I shall continue in the proper direction "'if I have to circumambulate the continent of Africa "'to reach my destination.' "'Further argument was interrupted by Tarzan, "'who, seeing that these strange men were not following him, "'had returned to their side. "'Again he beckoned to them, "'but still they stood in argument.' Presently, the ape-man lost patience with their stupid ignorance. He grasped the frightened Mr. Fillander by the shoulder. And before that worthy gentleman knew whether he was being killed or merely maimed for life, Tarzan had tied one end of his rope securely about Mr. Fillander's neck. "'Tut, tut, Mr. Fillander,' remonstrated Professor Porter. "'It is most unbeseeming to you to submit to such indignities.' But scarcely were the words out of his mouth ere he, too, had been seized and securely bound by the neck with the same rope. Then Tarzan set off toward the north, leading the now thoroughly frightened professor and his secretary. In deathly silence they proceeded what seemed hours to the two tired and hopeless old men, but presently they topped a little rise of ground, and they were overjoyed to see the cabin lying before them, not a hundred yards distant. Here Tarzan released them, and pointing toward the little building, vanished into the jungle beside them. "'Most remarkable!' gasped the professor. "'But you see, Mr. Fillander, that I was quite right, as usual, and but for your stubborn willfulness, we should have escaped a series of most humiliating, not to say dangerous accidents. Pray allow yourself to be guided by a more mature and practical mind hereafter when in need of wise counsel.' Mr. Samuel T. Fillander was too much relieved at the happy outcome to their adventure to take umbrage at the professor's cruel fling. Instead, he grasped his friend's arm and hastened him forward in the direction of the cabin. It was a much-relieved party of castaways that found itself once more united. Dawn discovered them still recounting their various adventures and speculating upon the identity of the strange guardian and protector that they had found on this savage shore. 
Esmeralda was positive that it was none other than the angel of the Lord, sent down especially to watch over them. "'Had you seen him devour the raw meat of that lion, Esmeralda?' laughed Clayton. "'You would have thought him a very material angel.' "'There was nothing heavenly about his voice,' said Jane Porter, with a little shudder at recollection of the awful roar which had followed the killing of the lioness. "'Nor did it precisely comport with my preconceived ideas of the dignity of divine messengers,' remarked Professor Porter. "'When the, uh, gentleman tied two highly respectable and erudite scholars neck to neck and dragged them to the jungle as though they had been cows.' Thanks for joining us for chapters 15 and 16 of Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Our story will continue next Sunday night at 8 at 1001 Stories for the Road. If you enjoy our stories here, please do send us a review. It helps us very much in the rankings. And also please subscribe to all of our shows, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Radio Days, and 1001 Stories for the Road. We appreciate your support very much. We also appreciate our Patreon supporters who help us with subscriptions on a monthly basis at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. Their support makes it possible for us to continue full-time and to reach 1001 Stories. Thanks so much for being a fan and listener. We appreciate it. We'll be back soon. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.